0: Man, is that not a taste of how good eternity will be as we worship Jesus together forever? Well, I, I hope that you guys are encouraged by, by our pastoral search update. Uh, our, our team is very excited, and uh, we are looking forward to sharing some more information about uh, this young man as, uh, in the coming weeks as we uh, move along in this process. But as Austin said, I, I ask that you continue to pray for us, um, just for wisdom to discern what God has for us for the families and the students here at RBC. Now, I hope that this passage of Scripture will stir your hearts to worship as much as the songs we just sang. Uh, But we are continuing our uh, series on our purpose statement, to exalt God, to equip his people, and to evangelize the lost. Whenever you have a group of people, whether that group is a sports team or it is a business, a band, anything else where people are coming together for a common purpose. There needs to be a level of variation, a level of diversity among the gifts and the abilities and the talents of its members. If you don't have that, you're going to struggle for success. If you took all of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL and placed them on a single team, that would be a horrible football team. You'd have some great quarterbacks, but nobody to play defense. Nobody to protect the quarterbacks. Nobody to catch the ball, to block, to run the ball. You would have a terrible football team because a football team needs blockers. They need defense, any kickers, receivers, running backs. Without each of those positions being filled with somebody who has the talent and ability for that position, that team would fall apart. They would be very unsuccessful. Think about your favorite band. How many of you have a favorite band? Show of hands real quick. All right, keep them up. How many of you have a favorite band that exclusively uses the bass guitar? No vocals, no drums, no electric guitar, five bass guitars, and that's it. I don't see any more hands up. If your hand is up, you have terrible taste in music. (laughs) A band is much better when it can blend the sounds and the voices of different instruments and people. The same is true of the church. God has taken the church and given them this task of exalting his name, equipping his people, and evangelizing the lost. And we're going to focus on that second one today, equipping his people. And we'll see in our passage today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, that God has given leaders to his church to lead in this endeavor, to lead in equipping the church so that it can grow. But equipping and growing the church is not only the task of your pastors or your elders, it is your job as well. All of us have been called to participate in this task. Now, I didn't originally intend to be back in Ephesians this week. When I thought through this series, I originally thought that I was going to kind of do a survey of a few different passages. But Ephesians 4, it just captures so well the, the diverse unity and purpose that God has for the church. So go ahead and turn there with me now. Ephesians chapter 4, and we will read verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father who one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all so paul writes the letter to the ephesians from a prison cell and from that cell he urges believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called And Paul's double use of this calling called language, it's the same word, just a different form of the word, but this double use here, it's emphasizing the importance and the centrality of this calling in the life of a Christian. This calling is the totality of our union to Christ, our our relationship with Jesus. That is ultimately what we have been called to, to give ourselves to Christ. And all believers have been chosen by God In Christ. This is what we talked about last week. We were adopted, redeemed, forgiven, saved, all of these things, all of these incredible blessings. And so now Paul is saying to these Christians, live accordingly. You've received all of this from the Lord, all these blessings, all these incredible things in Christ. Now walk in a way that is fitting for those who have received such a calling. Walk in a way that is fitting for those who have been adopted and forgiven and redeemed by God himself to walk refers to the entirety of our lives every aspect of your desires your actions your thoughts all of your words all of it should reflect Christ it should align with our father with what he has called us to do and what he has called us to be all of these blessings he has given us in Christ but he also chose us if you remember from last week to be holy and blameless before him so to walk in a manner worthy of our calling means that you are walking and living in total obedience before our God. But what we see in Ephesians 4 is that walking in a manner worthy is not something that you can do by yourself. It is not something you are able to do in isolation from other Christians. And in this text, there is a great focus on unity. We're going to see that in these first six verses and throughout the rest of our passage as well it's unfortunately very common today that people are hurt by the church. And they truly have been hurt by those in the church in one way or another. And when that happens, it's common for them to kind of recoil away, to distance themselves from their brothers and sisters, to to refuse to engage with them. They kind of sequester themselves away. They may remain in the church but they struggle to to re-engage after they've experienced that kind of church hurt. That's a problem, right? And we feel for them because that church hurt is real. We understand they don't want to invest only to get hurt again, but not investing into the community and the life of the church is not an option that God's word gives to us. Our Our worthy walking here, it has to be done in the larger community. And as we walk, it says, we do so with all humility, gentleness, and patience. And those are pretty straightforward, right? Humility is the opposite of pride. It means you recognize that in Christ, we are all on the same, same level, same plane. We are not superior to one another. And because of that, we can serve one another. We're not going to look down on people. We're not going to assume that we are better or more important than our brothers and sisters. Gentleness is a word that is often translated as meekness. And it speaks of self-control over one's thoughts, over one's emotions. So in dealing with others, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it means that you respond with a level head. Whatever the situation is, you respond in appropriate measure. That's what Paul means when he talks about gentleness. And patience is exactly what we think it is. It is to be long-suffering, to have a long fuse. You do not resort to anger quickly. Then the next two phrases there, bearing with one another in love and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit, this is, is practically what it looks like for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, for us to walk with all humility, gentleness, and patience. So walking worthy of our calling means that we bear with one another. It means that when we are hurt by those within the church, we don't let that distance us from the body of Christ. It means we are willing to forgive one another, to overlook those offenses and move forward and move past them. It also means we just gotta put up with each other. Yeah, amen. (laughs) Despite all of the weird quirks and behaviors you think somebody else has, it is your God-given task to bear with them in love. Not to do so begrudgingly, but we do so with love in our hearts for one another. And we do this because as Christians, we ought to have an eagerness, an earnest desire to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In both of those phrases, they refer to Christ's work, his work to take wildly different people People with different interests and talents and abilities and gifts and bring them together and unite them as one entity, as a one single body. And that's what Paul's doing. He goes on to say, he says, there's one body and there's one spirit. There, there are not different bodies or, or, or formations of the church for the different kinds of people that God made. There's one body for every person who has embraced the same calling that we have embraced. There's one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. There's one hope, and that hope referred to here is the same hope that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter one. It's our inheritance, our salvation, and the many blessings that come with that as well. Then Paul says there's one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith. That is our faith in Jesus that unites us, that we all share. Then there's one baptism. The Bible shows that the baptism symbolizes our entrance into the body of Christ, So we all come into the body of Christ in the exact same way, despite our differences, despite how unique each of us are. And we all share one God who is Father over all of us, and he is sovereign over all, because he has created all things. He created all, he preserves all, and he is present in all things. The first thing that Paul wants us to see is that Christ has united his people through a shared calling. Christ has united his people through a shared calling. And it's this shared calling that binds us together as one body. The unity in the body is both a gift that Christ has given us and it is something we must work to maintain. One commentator that I I like, he, uh, he put it this way. He said that our unity in Christ is like a gift card. When someone gives you a gift card... There's money loaded on it, it's loaded up, it's ready to be used. But until you actually swipe that gift card, you don't enjoy the benefit of that gift. In the same way, Jesus has already given us this gift of unity. He's brought us together through this shared faith, our shared Lord, our shared hope, our shared calling. We have everything we need to enjoy this unity among one another. But we must do the work by walking in a manner that is worthy of or fitting for our calling. And we know from our own lives and our own past as a church, even, how quickly unity splinters and fractures, where humility and gentleness and patience are lacking. I know it's not easy to put up with one another in love. We are not always eager to maintain unity with, especially with those who are different from us, from those who maybe annoy us. I want to see a show of hands again, a uh, show of hands again. Caleb's already got his hand up, he doesn't even know what I'm asking. (laughs) How many of you have been annoyed or offended by somebody in our church? Everybody's hand should be up. If your hand's not up, you're probably the reason somebody else's is. So everybody's (laughs) hand should be up right now. But seriously, we will not always get along with one another perfectly. Not everyone is going to be our best friend. There will be church members that you find weird or difficult or or, or that frustrate you. But God has said, bear with them in love. Forgive where offense is given. Overlook their quirks. Because after all, people are probably overlooking your quirks and weird behaviors as well. It's okay if you don't have the same interests as all of those people in our church. Because Christ has united us, not based on our interests, but through that shared calling. That is what binds us together in the bond of peace. All that we share in Christ eclipses those things that we don't have in common. We have the same faith, the same God, the same Savior, the same hope, the same salvation, the same goal in life to exalt Jesus Christ above everything else. And we have the same calling. That is far more than we need to maintain unity within the body far more than enough to foster true unity and true fellowship among ourselves. And I can speak from my own experience. My closest friendships in life are not with people who share the same interests that I have, the same hobbies and activities. They are with people who share Christ with me. Christ is enough to overcome the differences that we have and to unify a diverse people. Christ is has unified us through a shared calling. Let's look back at our passage. We'll we'll pick back up in verse 7, and we're going to read through the end of the passage, through verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ has given us this this shared calling. He has united us together as one new person, one new body. And now in verse 7, Christ has given gifts, spiritual gifts, to each of his people. The word used in this text, uh, grace, it's often used to describe spiritual gifts that are given for the purpose of ministry. And verse 8 made very clear that that was intended here because he talks about Christ giving gifts to his people. But these gifts are given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the means that our gifts were given, uh, this means rather, that our gifts were given according to the purpose and plan of Jesus Christ. It was according to his measurement. He distributed various gifts to his church with care and intentionality. God has placed people in redemption who are different from one another. Different interests, different abilities, different gifts, different talents, different whatever. But that, that diversity that exists within our body of personalities and people, that is a part of Christ's perfect will and plan. In verse eight, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. But this has been the source of a little bit of debate here because Paul's quote doesn't quite match up with Psalm 68. And you can see both of them on the screen behind me. So Ephesians 4, 8 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. If we go to Psalm 68, verse 18, where Paul's quoting from, he says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. You see the difference there? So in Ephesians 4, he is giving gifts, but in Psalm 68, he is receiving gifts. So what's going on here? Has Paul simply decided that, you know what? I'm going to change it. I like it better this way, and I'm going to make a point, and I'm going to change what the Old Testament said. Some would argue that that is the case. Others think that Paul was quoting a Jewish version of the text that matched with what he says here. I personally think both of those options would be very uncharacteristic for Paul. So my opinion, I don't think that Paul has truly changed the text here. But instead what he's done is he's recorded the sense or the meaning of the text in order to help us understand how Christ has fulfilled it. In Psalm 68, the context there is God acting as a divine warrior on behalf of his people, going to battle for them and defeating their enemies and delivering them from their enemies. And in the verse that Paul quotes here, verse 18 it pictures God ascending to his throne after defeating his enemies and receiving the spoils of victory. Paul wants us to see that this is exactly what Jesus did in his ministry. In verse 9, Paul says that in order for Christ to have ascended on high, that means he first would have need to descend. And that doesn't mean, as some would argue, that Jesus descended into hell. But what Paul's referencing here is the Incarnation. Christ taking on humanity, taking on flesh and coming here as a human being. And at his incarnation, in his obedience, his death, his resurrection, Jesus overthrew and conquered his enemies. The enemies of sin and death, the enemies of of Satan and demonic powers and forces. The book of Ephesians, not just here in chapter 4, but the whole book, really, really emphasizes Christ's victory over demonic and satanic powers in this world. So here in this verse and elsewhere in the letter, Paul is telling us Christ has embarrassed and shattered demonic forces and powers. So he descended to earth, he conquered his enemies, and then what happened next? So turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter one because Paul answers this for us back there. It's uh, verses 20 through 23. Actually, I'm gonna read verse 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That language of rule and authority and power and dominions, that is speaking of spiritual powers and forces. So, Paul is, is showing us here that after Christ came to earth and in his resurrection defeated his enemies, he ascended to the throne of the Father to sit at his right hand. And the Father took all things, everything, and put it under Christ's authority where it belongs. He received those gifts, just like in Psalm 68 all things rightly placed under his feet but now Christ has seen fit to give those gifts to his people. So Paul's not changing the meaning of the psalm. He's showing us how Christ has fulfilled it and how Christ has even gone a little bit farther than what the psalm even said. He's not only received those gifts that he deserved and defeated his enemies, but now he has given gifts to his people. And and that's the logical movement of this passage anyways. Because in Psalm 68, as God delivers his people uh, people Israel from their enemies, he certainly would share the spoils of the victory with his people Israel as well. So I would argue that Paul has not changed the meaning of this psalm. He has reworded it to make it even clearer to us how Christ has fulfilled it. So number two, Christ has equipped his people with spiritual gifts. There's not a single believer who has not received a spiritual gift. Who does not have a part to play in the well being and the building up of Christ's body. And this is echoed all through Paul's letters, not just here in Ephesians. If you belong to Jesus, you are a member of his body and you have a responsibility to his body. And students, this is not just for the adults here, this is not for your parents. If you are a Christian, even if you are in high school or middle school, you are a part of Christ's body. The church is not just for your parents. You have been gifted by Christ. You share in the same calling that unites every single one of us. And you have the same obligation to participate in the life of the church. Your youth is not an excuse to ignore that calling. Every one of us has been gifted. And as with any gift, the intent is that we would put it to good use. Right? I have recently learned the joy that comes from giving gifts to your children. Uh, you guys probably think I should already know that because I have two kids. One of them's two and a half almost, uh, but I don't. I didn't really see the point of giving gifts when they were like zero and one years. Like we got Ezra Christmas gifts. And you know what he did? Nothing. He had no idea what was happening. We did a birthday party for Maddie when she was one. She had no idea. She just wanted to eat cake. She had no idea what those gifts were. And so there wasn't. It really wasn't that much fun for me to give them gifts. But this year, uh, it was so much more fun. Maddie can talk, she knows what she's doing. And so Lauren and I, we got her this this big toy kitchen set. It's like a really nice wooden kitchen set. And she was so excited to open it. And it's so fun to watch her now because she loves to play with it. Like every day she's making us coffee and, and cookies and it's great. And I get so much joy watching her enjoy the gift that we've given her. Christ has given us good gifts. And we honor him. We show our gratitude to him when we put those gifts to good use. And that's exactly what verses 11 through 16 are all about. Using what God has equipped us with for the building up of his entire body. Paul doesn't give us a a list, a robust list of spiritual gifts here as he does elsewhere. Rather, he lists the gifts uh, given to those who function as, as leaders or as teachers in the church. So first, our apostles... And prophets. I'm going to deal with these two first, because in my opinion, and and if the opinion uh, of our church doctrinal statement, the the official view of the church, is, is that these two offices are no longer functioning. These are not spiritual gifts that are given to the church today. So an apostle, as we see in Scripture, is somebody who had seen the resurrected Christ in person and was specifically commissioned by Christ. People like Paul or the disciples. They were the clear-cut authorities for the early church. Prophets were closely linked with the apostles. In the New Testament, when you see prophets, they're almost always seen in close proximity to the apostles. So they were empowered by the Spirit to teach the truth about Christ and at times still foretell events that had yet to take place. And as I said, these two roles really are no longer needed in the church today. They were given to the church at her earliest and most vulnerable stage because they needed objective leaders and authorities. They needed teachers in the absence of the written word of the New Testament. But as the New Testament canon was completed, that became the standard and authority for Christ's church. The apostles no longer needed to function in that capacity. The fullness of God's revelation was given to us. And so the prophets were no longer needed for God to give us extra revelation. Now, some would disagree with me on that, and some people are going to disagree with the definition of those two terms. They would say that apostles and and prophets, they continue today, but just in different ways than the early church. If that's the case, I really don't think they're what Paul is speaking about here. And so it seems unwise and confusing to use the terms apostle and prophet. And my caution to you as your pastor is if you are listening to the teaching of someone who claims to be a prophet or apostle, Be extremely careful. Test what they say with the Word of God. Because God is not sending messengers to add to the New Testament. Church leaders today do not speak with authority that is equivalent to the authority of God's Word. This is our authority. I am not your authority. And my authority as a pastor is derived from this. It is not simply what I say goes. I only have authority so long as I am showing you what the text of Scripture says. And so when someone claims to have an authority not derived from God's word, or if they claim to receive special insight and revelation from God outside of what's been revealed in Scripture, I would encourage you to run from that teacher. Because God's word is the sufficient authority for his church today. Evangelists are those with the gift and the propensity for evangelism. They excel in sharing the gospel, particularly to those who have not heard it before. All of us are called to evangelism, but there are certain people who who have been uniquely gifted for it. And then the fourth gift here is shepherds and teachers. And I group those together because in Greek, they're governed by a single article. And that tells us that this is one gift, one role or or office here. Um, And and this is where we get the, the term pastor from the word shepherd. And this dual description here of shepherding and teaching It describes the the pastoral role quite well. So, all that to say, Christ has gifted and equipped certain believers to lead and to teach his church. And their gifting is given for the purpose of equipping the saints. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the church. I want you guys to hear that. To equip the saints. That's all of you. All believers to equip you guys for the work of ministry and for the work of building up the church it is not just Pastor Garrett's job to do ministry it is not just the elders or the deacons job it is my job and it is your leader's job to equip you all for that work of service but it is your job to do ministry and ministry there is is being used pretty much in its broadest sense any kind of service that leads to the exalting of Christ's name and the building up of his body all of us have received gifts every one of us and some he's given the gift and the task to lead. But those leaders are responsible to equip the rest of Christ's people to use their gifts for ministry and the building up of the body. Another way to say this would be to say that you have been equipped with spiritual gifts to be used for the common good of the whole. That's how Paul words it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The purpose of our gifts, and I, I'm really hitting this because I want this to stick. Whatever those gifts may be, is to benefit the whole body. You are called to use your gifts to serve, to encourage, to build up, and to equip one another for that ministry. That is the purpose, the reason that Christ gave you spiritual gifts. Ministering to and equipping one another so that the whole body is strengthened. If ministry and building up the body are the purpose of our gifts, then what we find in verses 13 and 14 are the result of the proper use of those gifts. And we see the result in two ways. Verse 13 shows us kind of the positive result, the outcome we're hoping for, and then verse 14 shows us the negative, the outcome that we are hoping to avoid. Verse 13 says that, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are all in this endeavor together. We are one team. We are on the same team, moving in the same direction toward the same goal. We are striving for the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And that is conformity to right belief about God, to right belief about Jesus. So when we strive together, it is to ensure that all of us are unified in believing the truth of God's word. We're also striving to attain mature manhood and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the aim of our Christian community is mutual upbuilding. It is to see that all of us arrive at spiritual maturity. So your job is not only to see yourself grow in your knowledge of God and your love for him and in your Christ-likeness, it is to see the same things for your brothers and sisters who are also here and engaged and invested in this, Christ, or this Christ-centered community. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians that believers were to stand firm for the gospel together, to strive side by side for the faith. Because spiritual growth and maturity is a corporate affair. Christ united us together as one body and equipped us so that we could do this together. And when this takes place, when we actually do this together, when we invest in one another, when we serve together and use our gifts for the benefit of the whole, it also offers us Protection. Verse 14 shows that the result of of whole church ministry is that we are protected from false teachers. When we're all working to strengthen the church, to move us towards maturity, the result is that we're no longer children who are easily led astray by any charlatan who can hold a microphone. Those who are spiritually immature, who are spiritual babies, are the ones who can sort of drift off into believing false teaching because they don't know any better. Other times, though, it's, it's not a matter of ignorance. It's that there are wolves who are out to deceive us. They are trying to lead God's people astray. And Paul uses the imagery here of a tiny little boat out in the sea without a rudder or sail to guide it. At the mercy of the waves, it's going to go wherever it is pushed. That's what it looks like to be an, an immature believer without the church body around to build them up and guide them into maturity. But with the church striving side by side, people using their gifts to equip and to serve one another, it protects all of us from the dangers and threats of false teaching. And church, that is a very, very real threat today. So many people are led astray by teachers and and so-called pastors who preach a different gospel. And they dress it up real nice. They make it look really, really Christian and sound theological and wise. But they're leading so many people astray. Prosperity gospel teachers twist the gospel to prey on immature or foolish people so they can pad their wallets. There's a a growing trend on social media, on TikTok and Instagram, and just different videos and reels that are leading students astray. Uh, And not our students specifically, hopefully. Uh, But they are, are teaching them that, hey, you can do whatever you want. God loves you. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You can be and do whatever you would like. But when we are in community, we are building one another up, we are coming around and unifying around the core doctrines of our faith, studying God's word together, we protect one another from that. And we move ourselves closer and closer to the likeness of Christ. And then finally, we come to verses 15 and 16. And Paul gives us, kind of revisits the means to that spiritual growth of the body. So he says, In contrast to these false teachers who deceive and who lead astray, you are to speak truth in love so that we can grow up into the head, into Christ. He is the head of the body. Our vitality as the body comes from him. But speaking that truth in love, it brings about greater Christ-likeness within the body. And so this means that that at times we have to offer correction or rebuke when someone sins. When someone is out of line and and their life is incongruent with God's commands. It's the body's job, the church's job, to lovingly guide them back. To call them to repentance and obedience. Or when someone strays into false teaching or a misunderstanding of our our central doctrines and faith, we point them back to the truth of God's word. But this kind of correcting and and speaking truth, it must be done in the right way. Without condescension or pride, it is done with love and genuine desire to, to maintain that unity, to see spiritual growth come about in that individual's life. Think back to verse two. Paul told us how to interact with one another already. He said, walk with one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. Speaking truth and love involves that same humility and gentleness and patience. So that means that we, when somebody is is erring or out of line, someone begins to speak what is not true, we don't belittle them. We don't publicly call them out so as to embarrass them. We take them aside and we graciously ask them to compare what they are saying, what they have been studying, and compare it to the truth of God's word. When someone errs into sin, We don't go to our best friend in the church and be like, can you believe what so-and-so did? And spread it around so everybody can know their failure. We don't scream at them. We don't heap guilt upon them. We go to them humbly and we gently ask them if they recognize that their behavior is outside the bounds of scripture. And we lovingly encourage them to repent and to align themselves with God's word. And as it says at the end of verse 16, it is when each part of the body is working properly and doing these things and using its gifts for the proper purpose, only then will the church grow and mature in love. I chose this passage because it is a beautiful picture of what the life of the church should look like. And if we summarize that picture to one sentence, we get our big idea for this passage. The church is one body that equips one another for ministry to produce spiritual maturity. The church is a single body. And they have been equipped to equip one another so that they can do ministry that produces and leads to spiritual growth and maturity. Christ gave us leaders to equip the saints. Then those saints have to do the exact same ministry. They serve others. They equip others. And as this happens, the church gets stronger and grows more and more into the image of Jesus. But every part of the body is needed. And when you choose not to engage with the body, not to exercise your gifts, you're not only di- doing a disservice to yourself, but you're actually hurting the whole body. Because if you're a member of this church, God has placed you in this body. There is no excuse to sit on the sidelines. The body needs every single part. The church needs all of us working and striving together, side by side, towards that same goal of spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Equipping God's people is a part of our church's purpose statement because that is not only the responsibility of your leaders. It is the responsibility of the entire church. All of us have a role to play in that. Christ has unified a single people and he has gifted every one of those people to serve, to equip, and to build up. And if you are not investing into the community of this body, I have to ask the question, why not? because Christ has called you to do so. And by not doing so, you are missing out on so many of the blessings of what it means to be a part of the church. Paul writes in Colossians chapter three that we are to teach and admonish each other, to sing psalms and praise and and give thanks to God together. The life that Christ envisioned for his body is one that is lived together. And it's great when that community, when that living together, that striving side by side, when that happens naturally, but oftentimes it doesn't. And that's why we offer ministries here like small groups. It's not just something we're putting on the calendar, but it allows us to accomplish our one of our primary purposes in the church. It gives us that opportunity to worship together. To grow in our knowledge of God and his word, it provides an avenue to minister to each other, to serve, to care, to equip, and to build one another up. Just as we've been commanded to do all throughout God's word. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to do so. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying if you're not in a small group that, that you are in sin. You are not required to join a small group. There are some legitimate reasons why you may not join a small group. That's totally okay. But there is no legitimate reason to not engage and invest in the community through ministry and fellowship. If you choose not to join a small group, that's totally fine, but find other ways to invest and build into the body. We have been united together as one body. Let us use our gifts to build one another up, to love one another, to invest into each other's lives, to stir each other up for love and good works. We should thank God and pray and and serve together so that we can grow up into the image of Christ who is our head. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his incredible and infinite wisdom in the way that he designed the church to function and work. We thank you that you have given us all such unique and diverse sets of gifts. Lord, and I pray that we as a whole would live into the vision you have for your church, that we would accomplish the purposes you created us for, that we would be obedient to your commands. Lord, and I pray that that we would see even more so than already exists a, a thriving community and fellowship, one that equips one another, that cares for each other, that loves one another, that bears with one another in love and patience and gentleness and humility. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. God, we ask that you would be exalted in the life of this church, and that in the life of this church, each of us would be built up more and more into your your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.